Good morning. I'm super excited to be with you this morning, not just because it's the first time that I can actually speak to you live for, I think, probably months, but because I believe that God is going to speak to you. So let's just pray together before we begin. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us today. I thank you it transforms us. And God, I pray for every single one of us this morning. Holy Spirit, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear the voice of the one who breathed these words out. Lord, we pray that you will transform us. You will ignite us with more and more passion for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you, like I said this morning. Now, when it comes to being human, there's an aspect of our shared common humanity that in our culture we don't think about a ton. And that is that we are eternal beings. But actually, eternity is something that we long for. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity inside the hearts of every person. If you've been following this series, if you were here last week, you'll know that Ben has brought us to the part of this letter, 1 Thessalonians, that deals with what theologians would call eschatology. Eschatology is, is the study of, of the things surrounding uh, Jesus' return and the ushering in of his kingdom on earth, bringing in an eternal kingdom of justice and love and joy and righteousness. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, for many years after I became a believer, this is the kind of subject that I gave a really, really wide berth. Anything to do with the return of Jesus, the book of Revelation, I just pushed that well out of my mind. To me, it just seemed something that was super complicated. It seemed like it was very contentious anyway, and maybe even, to be honest, a tad dull, a tad irrelevant to my everyday life. I'm glad to say I was incredibly wrong, but that's the way I felt. I was trying to think of something to compare this to, and the closest I could come to uh, was, in fact, one of my other real exciting passions, which is American football, the NFL. Now, most of you will know it's uh, the beginning of the premiership season at the moment, but actually probably less of you knew that it was also the beginning of the NFL season. Thursday night, the reigning Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs kicked off against Texas. I'm sure you were all glued to your TVs at 1am to watch that. But over the years, I've tried to convince a few of my friends and, and family and, and even my wife to, to get into uh, the, the exciting sport. And uh, I've even managed to persuade a few of them to sit down and watch it with me on occasion. Now, typically, about five minutes into the game, I'm met with the same kind of predictable response. They'll say something along the lines of, ah, I don't get it. It just seems like a load of people smashing into each other. It just seems a bit chaotic. And I go, no, 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 you don't understand. There's, there's all of this complexity and strategy, and these people are communicating with these people, and it's all been planned out, and it's amazing. And they go, okay, okay, I'll, I'll have a look. And, and they watch a little bit more, and, and they say then, well, okay, I, I can understand that it's complicated. I can understand that there's lots of complexity here, but do you know what? I'm never going to get my head around this. Do you know, I, I think I just want to turn this off. And I go, no, 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 no. keep watching. And, and I begin to unpack some some principles and, and some basic things that are happening on the field. Because I remember as a young lad when my dad was showing me the sport that, that even though I wasn't an expert, I began to understand just in simplicity some of the things that were going on. And then suddenly the game began to open up. And actually I could see excitement in the complexity and I could see fun in the complexity and beauty in the complexity. And it suddenly became a really exciting thing to get drawn into. And God took me on a pretty similar journey with, with, with the end times and, and the book of Revelation and his return a few years ago. He got me delving into these things and studying these things. And, and even though there was a lot of complexity and a lot of misunderstanding, 
actually the things began to open up to me and I began to understand a lot more about Jesus and who he is by understanding the events of his return. It's impossible to divorce our, our love for him and our passion for him and our worship for him with these things because they're so much a part of who he is. Before I read the passage, I want to share a quick quote from, uh, from Dana Candler who, um, who talks about this subject. She says, whether we call it eschatology or end times, sometimes we distance ourselves from the subject of Jesus' return. That's what I did. Maybe that's what you've been doing as well. She says our hesitance could be due to the many differing opinions that arise or, or the strange symbolism that we see. Or maybe the subject only conjures up the thoughts of the troubles surrounding that time. Whatever the reason may be, the result is distance. We distance ourselves from the story. But, she says, in all of this, we forget something simple. We forget him. We forget the person behind the story. That's Jesus. We love a real person, the one who gave himself for us. He is alive now, and he looks to that day ahead, the, the day of the Lord, as he calls it. And he couldn't be more connected to where this story is headed. We want to join him in that. To love him, she says, means more than just loving what we already know about him. It means loving all that he is, not just a part of it. And loving his plan, loving his return. She says, we're in the middle of a story. It's his story. And Jesus wants to reconnect us with himself, to put the finish line before our eyes, and to show us how to get there. I love this. I, I love this truth that actually... Part of our worship for Jesus is to love his return. And, and I think the greatest thing that understanding these truths has done for me is it has deepened my love for him. It's deepened my affection for him. It's deepened my worship. I always love to worship, but I can't think of anything in the last few years that's helped fuel the fire of my love for him more than understanding these things. So let's read this passage. If you've got your Bible, your phone with me, you want to read along from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to pick this up in the NIV says, now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light, children of the day. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on um, faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God didn't appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. So that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up, just as, in fact, you're doing. We can see from these verses here that Paul is not really striving to, uh, to give them lots of new teaching, lots of new information about Jesus' return. He says here, you know very well these things. We don't really need to write to you. What he wants to do is, is he wants to give them a couple of provocations, maybe a couple of little nudges by way of reminder to spur them on. 
I think the first one is that he wants to remind them that they can, and in fact we must, live in the light of eternity. It can be very difficult as we're trying to navigate the complexities of the modern age to, uh, to, 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 to raise our sights and live in the light of what is going to happen in the future. We're just trying to wrestle with how do, we, how do we meet together? How do we get along with each other in this era of social distancing? How do we, how do we raise our kids to, to understand the, the culture around us and, and the racial injustice that we see playing out before us? How do we do all that? And, and even just the more down-to-earth stuff, like how do we fit the shopping in this week? Just, just reaching our eyes to things of eternity can just seem very distant. But he reminds us to do it. And second of all, he reminds us that we can not only live in the light of eternity, but we can live in the light of our identity, of who we are. It's an identity that's given to us, not just from our background or our culture or our our sexuality or what team we support. It's an identity that comes from our relationship with Jesus. Let's look at the first one of those. Let's look at our living in the light of eternity. This human life kind of affords us two very different, two radically different ways to live our lives. And really it boils down to where are we going to choose to find our greatest joy, our deepest fulfillment and satisfaction? Are we going to find it in our relationship with Jesus? Are we going to find it by pursuing him, by intimacy with him, by the Holy Spirit? Are we going to have that that thirst in our souls quenched by knowing the one true God? Or are we going to seek that, that, that fulfillment and that satisfaction from, from the things the Bible would say of the world, from the sinful desires, the, what it would present as counterfeit pleasures of this age? And Jesus calls every single one of us. He did it 2,000 years ago. He does it now through the Bible. He calls us into relationship with himself. And he makes a way by giving his life for us on the cross that we can all come into relationship with him. He describes it here in verse 10. He says, he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, in other words, whether we're still alive or or whether we've died when he returns, we may live with him. And that was his heart in that, that, that we would live with him, that we would know him and love him and be in relationship with him. You know, Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins out of pity. He didn't die for us on the cross because he couldn't stomach the idea of us being in hell for eternity. He died because he wanted us. He wanted us in relationship with him, to know him, to love him, to be with him. It was his desire. And he did everything there that we could be forgiven and washed clean. And for those that have said yes to that relationship with him, for those that pursue their joy and their fulfillment in Jesus, actually, do you know what? It describes us as being awake. We are ones who are awakened spiritually. We're alive to him. We we spend our days pursuing him, relating to him in prayer and worship. And actually for those people, this day of the Lord, as he describes it, this time of Jesus' return, it's not going to come as a shock. It's not going to come as a great surprise. Now, no one's going to be able to give you the date and the time of of his return. If, If anyone claims that, then they're lying, or at least they're very deceived. But actually, it won't come as a shock because they know him, they love him, they're tracking with him in this life. But for those who have not received him, for those that have not said yes to that joy of knowing him and who are pursuing their fulfillment in things that actually the Bible says God hates, this day is going to come as a great surprise. 
Well, there's that sense of complacency that there's peace and safety. My life seems to be going well. Actually, the day will come, not as a, not as a day of rejoicing and celebration, but as a nasty surprise. Let me challenge you. If you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never said yes to that relationship with him, if you've never asked him to come into your life, to wash you clean of everything you've ever done wrong and pour his love into your heart so that you can know him, you must do that. Do that this morning. Just spend this time crying out to him and asking him to begin that relationship with you. So God talks about living in the light of eternity. It also talks about living in the light of our identity. Now, why would Paul do that? I believe it's because Paul understood something very simple but very profound, that our lifestyle will inevitably flow out of our sense of identity, our sense of who it is that we believe we are. Christian morality is not really a matter of rules and and, and precepts to be followed, commands to be obeyed. It's the lifestyle that flows out of who we have become, who God has made us in him. As I said before, this lifestyle isn't something that that comes from from, from our background or, or our choosing or even our culture, but it is a fundamental shift that God has put in the heart of every single person that has trusted him. And actually, we never really need to work terribly hard to live out of our identity. It's something that that comes very naturally. If you believe yourself to be a confident person, you will generally walk into the room with a bit of a swagger, with that confident lilt in your voice. You'll tend to take charge in that situation. You don't have to work up an effort to do that. That's just who you think yourself to be. And actually, any believer who has a sense of identity that lines up with what the New Testament says of them in God we'll have that rootedness, we'll have that security that actually whatever the storms of life may throw at them, and it will, and they will get buffeted, actually there'll be a rootedness and a steadiness because we know who we are in Him. The New Testament paints a very, very broad and very rich picture of of who we have become in God. And actually it is something that is so important for us to understand and dive into. For many years as a believer, I loved God, I knew God, I was filled with His Spirit, but I was racked with insecurity, I was racked with fear, and my life was dominated by it. I would never really be able to show up as myself in any kind of situation. And I remember God really gripping me about this reality of my identity in God and how important it was, and that I realized all these things God was saying were true of me, I didn't really believe them. I remember going out and buying the cheapest Bible I could find and a bunch of biros of different colors so I could underline all the different lines and I would scour through the New Testament to see what it said about me. And I tell you what, I can't think of anything more transformational to to, to my life day to day than doing that because it put a foundation in me of what God says about me and what God says is true. So while the New Testament talks about so many different aspects, in this particular passage, Paul is really just drilling down on one thing. It's like he's got one nail and he's going to hit that nail on the head over and over again. This is what he says. He says things like this in verse 4. He says, you are not in darkness. He says, you're children, in fact, of light. You're children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. He's using these metaphors of night and darkness and light and day. 
And he's saying a fundamental change has happened in your identity. God has flicked the switch of who you are. It's a popular uh, metaphor that he uses, actually, in his writings. Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he takes it a notch further. He says, actually, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He's saying you were darkness. That's who you were. It wasn't just that there were some troubles in your life. Fundamentally, this was your identity. But now God, not because of anything you've done, but by his grace has transformed you. You are light. This is who you are. You're children of the day. And if our identity is in darkness, if, we, if this is who we believe ourselves to be, then certain things begin to flow naturally out of that that he talks about. Actually, it will be natural for us to be, so to speak, asleep. Not, maybe not literally asleep, but spiritually asleep. That actually there'll be, there'll be that sense of spiritual apathy that will be, we'll be deadened, that will be disconnected from the life of God, disconnected from our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He says, actually, other things are inevitable if you believe yourself to be in darkness, that actually there'll be that sense of just being drunk. Maybe not literally drunk, or maybe that's it, but actually that just, just spiritually disconnected from righteousness. We'll be careless to the things of purity and holiness. But he says, actually, no, this is not who you are. Live as children of the day. Live as people of the light, because that's who you are. Don't live a lifestyle that doesn't befit your identity in him. For those of us that know that we've come alive, we've come awake, then we are awakened spiritually. We're awakened to relationship with him. We're awakened to the Holy Spirit day by day, morning by morning. We spend our days pursuing him and knowing him. That we'll be, as it were, sober. That we'll be, that we'll be conscious and conscientious to chase sin out of our life because, because that's not who we are anymore. It's not because there's a law against it. It's because that doesn't fit who I am. And so Paul finishes by saying, actually, you need to suit up. You need to put some things on. You need to wear some stuff. Do you know what? There are, there's probably not many more obvious expressions of our identity than the, the clothes we choose to wear, right? Now, this kind of goes both ways. Sometimes we, we wear a certain thing because we want to project a certain identity out to the world. I might wear the, 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 the shirt of my favorite team because I want to show you that these are my people. This is my tribe. Maybe this is where I'm from. This is, this is who I am. It goes the other way as well. Sometimes we wear stuff because we, we're, we're trying to cultivate a certain sense of identity in ourselves, like, like the business person who puts on the sharp suit so that when they walk into the boardroom, they have a sense of authority and command. Or maybe it's, it's the person who, who, who wears the top-notch sporting gear because they want to grow in their game. I read this story recently. A guy called Stephen Pressfield wrote a book called Going Pro, and a friend of his decided to take up golf at the same time as he did. And just a couple of months into their new golfing career, they, they, they turned up at the course together, and, and his friend was there, and she was dressed in the most expensive professional golfing gear, and she had the most expensive professional golf clubs. And he looked at her and he said, what's with all this? You've only been playing for a couple of months. But she said, I've decided I'm a golfer, and so I'm getting this stuff. I'm going pro. She'd made that mental shift in her mind that this is who she was and this is what she was going to wear. He said after a year, her game was insane because she'd made that mental jump to this is who I am. And so Paul says, you need to put some stuff on, right? You need to wear the clothing that befits your identity in God. Now, what is this 
clothing. Well, it might be a bit surprising, but actually all the things he mentions are armor. (laughs) They're what you would wear to battle. I think he's trying to convey this sense of of really being awake, that actually we we need to be battle-ready in this life. He says that we have a few bits of armor to put on. He says the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's picking up on on a familiar theme again in his writing, these three cornerstones of the Christian life, faith and hope and love. He says we need to wear those things. We need to wear the, the clothing that befits our relationship with God and our identity. Make it visible so when people encounter you, they see these things on you. I wonder when people see you, do they see someone who is walking by faith, not by sight? What does that mean? It means that we're living our life, we're making our decisions, we're planning for the future, our day-to-day, as though we believe the promises in this book are true. We're not just reacting and responding to whatever life throws at us this week. People can see that lifestyle of faith when they encounter us. They notice it. Do people see hope on you when they encounter you? Barack Obama said that hope is that stubborn thing inside us that insists there must be better days coming. And actually, do you know what? As Christians, we ought to be the most hope-fueled people you'll ever meet because we carry around inside us the one who is hope, right? We should be the hope bringers. We should be the ones that inject hope into circumstances around us, whether that's at work or whether that's at school or amongst our family. We'll be the ones that inject hope into situations where cynicism and disappointment have taken root. What about love? Do you wear love? Do people encounter love when they see you? Do you know what? Irreligious people, people who spent a lifetime walking away from God, when they encountered Jesus, they knew they'd been loved. And it wasn't magic. It wasn't like they just sort of felt it within 50 yards of him. It was what he did. It was the way he responded to them that mattered. Do you know that when, do you remember that story of Zacchaeus? <laughs> Zacchaeus was the guy everyone hated. Zacchaeus was the person that was public enemy number one. And, and, and rightly so in some ways. He'd spent his life getting rich off the poverty of others. He was extorting money to line the pockets of the Roman Empire and taking plenty for himself. And in his gospel, Luke tells the story of the, the pitiful story of this guy's life. And then Jesus has dinner with the guy. He spends a couple of hours over the meal table. And he comes out the other side, and Zacchaeus is transformed. He is, he's suddenly the most generous, kind, giving person you'll ever meet. And I used to read that story, and I got so frustrated with Luke, who wrote it down. I was like, Luke, you're an idiot. Because you tell me what he was like before he met Jesus. And then what he was like after this closed doors conversation with Jesus. But Luke, what did he say? And I thought, do you know what? If I could just know, if I could find on a scroll in a cave somewhere, what Jesus said in that conversation, would you know what? We'd all do it. That would transform my evangelism. I'll never forget the Holy Spirit began to show me why he didn't record that. It's because his words were not the thing that won him over. It was the love that he had for him. Maybe the first person that had ever expressed love for him in years, maybe ever. How he honored him. How he stood up for him. How he put his own reputation on the line to spend time with him and no one else would. He wore love and people could see it. I'm coming into land, but I want to challenge you. What is God speaking to you about this morning? What is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? 
Maybe for you, it's, it's just pressing into this thing of deepening your love for Jesus, understanding the events of his return. Maybe you want to get that book that Ben recommended last week by John Hosier, or I could recommend some others. Maybe for you, it's actually just delving into your identity in Christ. Maybe you know you're living with that insecurity. Maybe you know you're living a lifestyle that isn't really what you want it to be. And just delving into your identity, who you are in this book might help you. Maybe God is just challenging you what you need to put on your faith and your hope and your love. In a moment, we're going to break bread together. Um, Before I do that, though, I'm going to uh, pass back to James and and Heidi. We're going to lead us in one more song. As we sing, why don't you just use that opportunity to spend some time with God? Do business with Him this morning. If you know He's speaking to you, don't let that moment go. Just pray and spend that time drawing near to Him. Over to you guys.